0: everyone, my name is Ali and this is Insight. Here with me today, as she is every week, is Charlie. How are you?
1: Good, how are you?
0: Well, we're back in school vacation for Easter break, though it does feel like they just went back from summer break. But it, it is nice to spend time with them. We don't spend much time together during the school term, so it is nice.
1: Yeah, we are looking forward to... To summer break is coming up for us pretty soon so I'm excited for that because it feels like it's been a very very long school year.
0: Yes we had a longer term this term so but then again ask me in a week and I'll probably feel different. (laughs) This week back when we covered Wanda Beach I mentioned there were three cases when I was growing up that my grandmother would talk about We've already covered two of them, Wonder Beach Murders, of course, and the Beaumont Children Disappearance. And then there is this one. I actually told my grandmother we were covering this case this week, and bless her, no matter how many times I play her the podcast and explain the whole process to her, she can't get her head around it. But she rattled off all the details of this case from memory. She remembered details that I had spent hours researching. The case I'm talking about is the first known case of a kidnapping of a child for ransom in Australia, the 1960 kidnap and murder of eight year old Graham Thorne. And this is a listener suggestion from Lisa, so thank you, Lisa. Now, a bit of background that will make sense shortly, but one of Australia's most well known monuments is the Sydney Opera House. When it was being built, it was partly funded by a public lottery, the Opera House Lottery. And this was launched in 1960. First prize of this lottery was £100,000, which in today's money, that's around $3 million. So it was a fair chunk of change and literally a life-changing prize. Basil Thorne was a 37-year-old who worked as a commercial traveller in partnership with his dad. Generally, Basil would leave home on a Sunday night or a Monday morning, and he returned home on a Thursday night. Basil and his wife, Frida, they lived in a modest rental apartment in Bondi, which is in Sydney. They had three children, Basil and Frida's eldest child, Cheryl. She was born with a severe disability. And back in the 1950, 1960s Australia, When you had a disabled child, they were placed in an institution, which is what happened to Cheryl. Basil and Frida were still very involved in Cheryl's life though, which again was unusual for this time. And they would always talk about her progress to others, and they would visit her as often as they could. Basil and Frida had two more children, Graham, who was eight, and three-year-old Belinda. Basil bought a three-pound ticket in the Opera House Lottery, which was not by any means affordable. It was about $85 in today's money. And the average weekly wage was about £17. So this was a decent percentage of the family's income. And this was a popular lottery. Thousands of tickets were sold, and there were long queues just to buy a ticket. Basil bought ticket number 3932 for the 10th draw, which was announced June 1st, 1960.
1: Luck goes the Thorne family's way and the impossible becomes possible. Basil's ticket is drawn, and like the nine previous winners, his picture is on the front page of the newspaper holding the winning ticket. The article next to the picture mentioned Basil's family and even listed their street address. At the time, it was felt that the public naming of lottery winners was important to maintain the credibility of the lottery and to give complete transparency. All details of every lottery winner was to be public record. Basil and Frida were grateful for the money. They weren't living in squalor by any means, but things were tight. But they were also determined not to change their lives because of the win, They didn't want to waste the money, and they wanted to make sure their parents and their three children were taken care of. Like Allie said, they had one child who was in institutionalized care, and then they had two younger children they were determined to give a good education to. They decided to go ahead and leave the money in the bank for a while until that initial excitement of winning kind of died down a bit. And Basil also continued working. The only real change they did make was they had a telephone installed in their apartment. They had been using the public payphone down the street, a payphone that wasn't always available and it wasn't always working. By the early 1960s, Australian homes often had more than one phone in them, and they were being sold in multiple colors so you could match them to your decor. So this isn't exactly a shocking luxury to install a phone line at this point. Also, seeing as Basil traveled for work, this let him keep in touch with the family when he was out of town. The win would also help pay for Graham's education. Before their big win, Basil and Frida had scrimped and saved in order to send Graham to uh, the selective private school, the Scots College in Bellevue Hill, which is where most of the males in Basil's family attended. And the money allowed them to ease up a bit on the scrimping. Before we get further into the story, we want to go ahead and take a break for our sponsor for this week. We're very excited to be sponsored by Hunt a Killer. Maybe you've already heard about it. People are obsessed. BuzzFeed, Fast Company, and Bustle have all featured Hunt a Killer. You get a package in the mail with creepy correspondence from this killer curator, and he's kind of like a Hannibal Lecter character. He's got a mystery that you need to solve. Every month, you get a box with new clues, letters, articles, objects, tools, all adding to this ongoing murder mystery. And it's up to you to solve it, along with the thousands of other members just working together in online communities. This is the perfect thing for an armchair detective like me, like Allie, probably like you, to put your sleuthing skills to the test. You can join by logging into huntakiller.com and applying for membership. Huntakiller is growing fast. They have to limit their new memberships. They only take 500 a week. Once you're approved for membership, you get a private link to subscribe, and then the monthly package shows up at your door. I can tell you from experience that waiting for this package is the hardest part. If you love poring over creepy codes, ciphers, and clues, Hunter Killer is perfect. If for some reason it's not for you, I bet you can think of at least one person in your life who would love to receive this as a gift. And to help support our show, Hunt a Killer has offered a 10% discount code for our listeners, which is tracked to this message. Use the code INSIGHT, I-N-S-I-G-H-T, one word, and get 10% off. That's INSIGHT.
0: Thursday, July 7, 1960, it started out just a normal sunny winter's day for the Thorns. Basil left for work on the Monday and he was in the New South Wales country town of Kempsey and Frida sent Graham to school and it was the same routine as every other school day except for this particular day they were running late. While he got dressed in his grey school uniform and cap Frida made up his lunch. She made sandwiches cut in half and peeled his apple Something that I didn't know, but Frida placed the peel back around the apple so it wouldn't brown before he ate it at lunch. Despite starting the morning late, he left on time at 8.30. Frida gave her son a kiss and she gave him his school case, which contained his lunch, school books and bits and pieces he carried around with him. Being an eight-year-old boy and being a mum to an eight-year-old boy, it was most likely something to play with his friends during his lunch break. From there, Graham walked down Wellington Street towards the corner store where he always bought a bag of chips, and then he would eat them while he waited at the corner of O'Brien Street for a family friend, Phyllis Smith. And she would drive Graham the 10 or 15 minutes to school, along with her two sons, who went to the Scots College as well. On this particular morning, one of Graham's school friends, who was being driven to school himself... He saw Graham walking on his normal route, and he waved to him.
1: At 8.40 in the morning, Phyllis Smith arrived at the pickup point, but there was no Graham. Thinking that he must still be at the store, she honked the car horn to tell him to hurry up. No response. She sent one of her sons into the store to get Graham. And I'm going to apologize now. I have a son named Graham. And so I keep saying Graham instead of Graham. And I'm sure our American listeners are like, they sound the same to me. But to everyone else out there, I apologize if I accidentally say Graham, since that is my son's name. She sent one of her sons into the store to get Graham. And within a few seconds, he came out telling her that he wasn't in the store. Phyllis waited a few more minutes, figuring it's probably running late. After waiting a bit and being a few decades too early for a cell phone to call the home to see what was going on, Phyllis drove to the Thorns' home to figure out where Graham was. Maybe he was sick, and they they just forgot to let her know. Frida answered the door, thinking it was probably Graham, and he had probably forgotten something, and had to run home to get it. When Phyllis told Frida that Graham was wasn't waiting at the normal pickup point panic immediately set in he was a responsible boy and he wasn't the type to wander off plus even if he was he had to have known he would have gotten caught out pretty quickly when he wasn't where he needed to be 10 minutes after he left home phyllis assured frida that everything would be fine and maybe graham got a ride with another school friend without realizing that still meant Phyllis would be expecting him. Even responsible eight-year-olds are still only eight years old, and they don't always think through their decisions.
0: And Phyllis was the mother of two boys around Graham's age. She would know herself what they are capable of. I can understand why Phyllis would have been less anxious about the situation than Frida.
1: Phyllis drove to Scott's college with her sons, and she went into the administration block to find out if Graham's name had been checked off at school. It was the start of the day with the boys coming in and settling down, and the start of the school day rush can be a bit chaotic, so it took another 10 minutes before Phyllis was told that he definitely was not at school. Phyllis went back to Frida, who by this stage was obviously beside herself. Frida then contacted the Bondi police station to report her son missing.
0: So the police arrived at the Thorns' home. It does take them 20 minutes to get there, so we're looking at around 9.30 now, or one hour after Graham left home. So it's not a significant amount of time, but it would have felt like forever for Frida. Sergeant O'Shea is the officer and while they're gathering general information so they can start the search for Graham, you know they were getting a photo and description of what Graham looked like, what route he took, that type of thing, the telephone rings. Frida answers the telephone, hoping it was the school calling to tell her that Graham had arrived, but on the other end was a man with a distinctive European accent asking to speak to her husband and he tells Frida that he had her son. Sergeant O'Shea takes the phone off Frida because it's reported it looked like she was going to faint. The sergeant tells the caller that he is Mr. Thorne. The caller told Sergeant O'Shea that he had Graham, and he wanted £25,000 by 5pm that day, and that if he didn't, the caller would feed Graham to the sharks. And then he said he would contact back later that day with details of the drop-off. Now, it's obvious at this point this isn't your normal runaway situation, and that it seemed that Graham was definitely abducted. The Criminal Investigation Bureau was immediately contacted, and a team of police were put together. Within a short time, the Thorn's phone were tapped so any future calls could be monitored and traced and major roads were blocked, and airports and shipping docks were alerted to keep an eye out for a boy who matched Graham's description.
1: As Allie said, Basil was away on business and wasn't due back until that night. He had no idea what was happening back at home. As he stepped off the plane into Sydney, his name was called over the airport PA system. When he approached the inquiry desk, he saw the police waiting for him, to tell him that it appeared his son had been kidnapped. By the time he got home, Frida had been medically sedated and there were reporters waiting outside his home. In situations like this, we know the police like to keep the details quiet, that even though the caller did not say not to contact the police, they didn't wanna jeopardize any chance of getting Graham home safely by letting the media know that it was a kidnap for ransom and that the police were already involved. The media caught wind of the story. Whether a neighbor leaked it or a police officer let it slip, we don't know. Despite the police's best efforts to keep the story out of the headlines, journalists were too fascinated with it. Remember this was pre-Wanda Beach and pre-Beaumont children? Australia's children were still perceived as safe in public spaces. They could play outside alone. They could walk down a familiar path to meet their ride to school alone. Kidnapping was unheard of, especially kidnapping for ransom. Kidnapping for ransom was something Australians read about happening in other countries, but certainly not in Australia. The police were focused on keeping negotiations and contact with the kidnapper open. They wanted primarily for the kidnapper to give them the list of demands. If the newspaper started reporting details of the case too early The fear was that the kidnapper would be scared off and the worst would happen. They wouldn't be able to get Graham back.
0: Because a child had never been kidnapped for ransom in Australia before, it meant the police had no experience in investigating or handling a crime like this. The only vaguely similar crime they had worked with involved an adult male victim who had been abducted in 1932, so that's, what, 28 years earlier. And that happened in Bondi as well. But in this case, the family were forced to write out a £10,000 money order, which the kidnappers weren't able to cash out. The victim was released unharmed in this case, thankfully, and the two kidnappers were caught and charged. Kidnapping for ransom was so unheard of, there was no offence for this on the statute books in New South Wales. And as you said, Charlie, kidnapping for ransom was something that only happened overseas. Actually, in the weeks before Graham's abduction, a major Australian magazine, The Weekend, it had a series of articles featuring kidnap for ransom cases overseas, such as 20-month-old Charles Lindbergh, who was kidnapped for $50,000 in 1932. But unfortunately, in this case, he was later found murdered. His kidnapper was ultimately apprehended. We won't go too much further into that one because I would like to cover that case at some stage.
1: We're going to have to cover it because here's a fun fact. I wrote a paper in high school on the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and I got a C on it. And I was appalled because I just... I didn't get C's on papers. So we have to cover this so I can redeem myself from that 20-year-old mark on my high school record.
0: And we'll expect each of our listeners to give us our grading.
1: Higher than a C. Here's hoping.
0: It better be higher than a C. (laughs) This article also covered a French case from earlier in 1960 concerning four-year-old Eric Peugeot, who was the great-grandson of the $40 million Peugeot car dynasty. In this case, the kidnappers conducted intensive surveillance on the family before the kidnapping in April of 1960. They left a ransom note in a sand pit where Eric was taken. The ransom demands were followed and the police weren't contacted. And three days later, 50 million francs, or about $350,000, it was paid and Eric was returned safely. The police didn't have their first serious lead until six months later. And then in February 1961, the three kidnappers were arrested. They had already spent virtually all the ransom money. And in the following year, they were sentenced to 20 years imprisonment.
1: However, regardless of the investigator's best efforts, the story was front page news on the afternoon edition of the newspaper. This is back when there were two editions of the newspaper, a morning one with the overnight news, and then anything major that happened that morning into the early afternoon made the afternoon edition of the paper. In the meantime, police looked around Graham's neighborhood to try to find witnesses who possibly had seen something. They went to his school to talk to his school friends and teachers on the off chance that anyone strange had been loitering around the school grounds, possibly watching the kids, possibly watching Graham specifically. Arrangements were made for a police officer to stay at the Thorns' home 24 hours a day. Constable Noonan was to stay during the week with Sergeant Paul to take over for the weekend's. And this was to continue until either Graham was found or the investigation was over. Not only would this mean a police officer was there if the kidnapper made contact again, it would also help Basil and Frida deal with the constant stream of phone calls and letters from the media. Basil, Frida, and the investigators waited for the second call with instructions on where to leave the money, but it didn't come. It wasn't until 9.47 p.m. that the man with the European accent called back. This time, a different detective to the first answered the phone and said that he was Mr. Thorne. So let's pause for a minute. We don't know how different the officers from the first call to the second call sounded. So it seemed kind of an odd way to go about it. Maybe they assumed they sounded enough alike Or maybe the first officer didn't speak very much in the first phone call, so they figured the kidnapper wouldn't be able to remember or recognize his voice again. Regardless, through the newspapers, the kidnapper surely knew the police were involved at that point, so why keep up the ruse at all? Maybe they thought the kidnapper would hang up if they knew it was a police officer? I don't know.
0: But the fact that they were using a different police officer anyway would make the kidnapper suspicious and, again, most likely to hang up. So I I find that very odd.
1: I do too. The detective on the second phone call also detected an accent that sounded Eastern European, but since he didn't hear the first call, he couldn't have known for sure it was the same person. It would have been possible a group was behind this, or a partnership, not a single person. Anyway, the caller started explaining the drop-off, but the detective interrupted, saying he needed to write it all down and to speak more slowly. He did this to try to keep the caller on the line so that he could trace the call. Nowadays, caller ID tells us where the call is coming from before we even answer, but tracing a call when telephones were still run by switches, took time and the person had to stay on the line during that time for this to happen. The caller either understood the tracing of calls or was just suspicious of being stalled in general and he hung up abruptly. That leaves us past the deadline for the ransom demands and the Thorns still had no idea how to get their
0: son back. That evening, less than 12 hours after Graham's disappearance, Basil went to the Bondi police station and he made an emotional television appearance in which he only gets a few words out before he breaks down.
2: If the person who has my son is a father, and has children of his own, all I can say is, for God's sake, send him back to me in one piece.
0: (laughs) Within days, the New South Wales government offered a £5,000 reward. And that was for the information leading to the arrest and conviction of Graham's kidnapper. Within a week of that, newspaper publishers added to that by donating another £15,000 reward. This brought the total reward to £20,000, or a little over half a million dollars in today's money, which would have been unprecedented reward in the 1960s. There were also substantiated rumours at the time that police had met with known underworld figures and criminals for their help in finding possible hiding spots, like empty warehouses or condemned houses, where someone might be keeping Graham, or even suspects that the police could question. Although from what I have read, I don't know how much of the guilty party would have been left by the time they were handed over to the police." The New South Wales government also reacts to public anger when it's released there is no crime on the statute books that meets these circumstances, and that if the guilty party was found, there was nothing suitable to charge him with. There was even calls for the reintroduction to the death penalty, which was only abolished five years previous to this. Under the Crimes Act at the time, anyone found guilty of kidnapping only faced a maximum sentence of ten years, However, there was consideration for making kidnapping a capital offence and classifying it as the same as murder with a maximum sentence of life imprisonment.
1: The public interest in the case was high, as was the emotion attached because this was a young boy. There was a large reward on the table. So with all this, the tips poured in by the thousands. A task force of 40 police officers was established to organize and follow up on all of the tips. Most of the tips, though, were vague, misleading, or both vague and misleading. Anytime a similar tip comes in from multiple people, investigators give it more weight. One such tip was of sightings of a man who, for a few days before Graham was kidnapped, had been sitting on a seat in the park opposite the Thorns' home. This park was where Graham and his friends often played in after school and on the weekends. But eyewitnesses, you guys, we've done this before. The description of the man was vague, at best, and it varied considerably from witness to witness. Honestly, a man sitting in a park? Yeah, sure, you might remember he was there, but how closely would you have studied him? So it's understandable that these eyewitness accounts varied, but also unfortunate.
0: And really, we're talking about a park here, a man sitting there. You have no real reason to be really staring at him, taking in his details.
1: Another tip that came in multiple times was that on the morning of the kidnapping, there was a car parked at the corner of Wellington Street along Graham's route to the corner store. Again, the description of the car varied enormously. It was a blue Ford or a green Holden or a black Dodge. What was noticed that it was a really odd place to park. It, it, If he had pulled up just a little bit more, it would have been easier for other cars to go through. Possibly the best piece of evidence they had on who took Graham at this stage was from Frida and Basil themselves. Three weeks before Graham disappeared, a larger man, about Five foot six in his 30s, had an olive complexion and a strong European accent, visited the Thorns home. Now, when Allie and I are saying European accent, it's not because we think all Europeans have the same accent, it's because that's what's been reported by the Thorns and we don't want to put words in their mouth. It was described as a European accent. The visit stood out for them. It was in the evening after dinner, and this man told Frida that he was a private inquiry agent who was looking for a previous tenant, uh, Mr. Bogner, for something he called a, quote, husband and wife affair. Frida didn't know what he meant by that, but told him that she didn't know anyone by that name. That was not the name of the previous tenant before them. This private agent looked at his notebook, and he read off a phone number asking Frida if that was the number to the flat. Frida confirmed that, yes, this was her telephone number, but the phone hadn't even been hooked up yet. She suggested he go upstairs and check with another tenant, Dorothy Lord, because she had lived there for many years and she would have known all the previous tenants.
0: Now, this man actually does go upstairs and talk to Dorothy, but instead of saying he was looking for the Mr. Bogner, he uses the previous tenant's name that Frida told him about. And Dorothy confirms that, yes, this man did live downstairs, but she didn't know where he was living now. And the police did look for anyone with the name Bogner in the area throughout the investigation, and they did come up empty handed. But Frida told the police that she was confident the man vi- who visited her home looking for this Mr Bogner and the man who called saying that he had Graham, they were the same person. But as with all high profile cases, with the publicity and the people trying to help, also came those trying to take advantage of the situation. And the normal parade of psychics and false confessions, they come streaming in. But this wasn't your normal, average missing persons case because we have a child here and this was a ransom demand. There were about a dozen phone calls in the early part of the investigation claiming that they had Graham and they were willing to negotiate the ransom demands. And they would say things like, well we're actually willing to accept £5,000 instead of the £25,000. And we want them in unmarked bills in a brown paper bag in the garbage bin outside the town hall. Things like that. Basil Thorne would ask to speak to Graham for proof that he was still alive. And then when this was refused, like we saw in the June Robles case that we spoke about last year, Basil would ask questions that only Graham would know the answers to. Like, what's your school friend's nickname? What's the housekeeper's name? And of course, these callers, they couldn't answer these questions. Because of this, and again, like with other high-profile cases, there was a decision to withhold certain pieces of information from the public, like the visit of the man with the accent to the thorns. However, again, like with the other information, this was leaked to the media within a few days. Each phone call that comes through give Basil and Frida new hope that they would get Graham back. But the original caller, that man with a European accent, he never calls back.
1: Ali just mentioned the June Robles case, and another similarity we'll see with this, these cases is that Frida and Basil wrote a letter which was then published in the local newspaper, The Daily Mirror. The letter asked the kidnapper to contact their local minister, Reverend Goodwin, who offered to act as an intermediary. He offered that his church would be left unlocked with the light on 24 hours a day so the kidnappers could leave Graham there or leave a note to recommence the negotiations. This appeal did nothing except reignite bogus ransom demands. The opportunism of some people, I mean, this honestly disgusts me. Eventually, Reverend Goodwin withdrew as an intermediary because of the continued harassment from people making false confessions. He was immediately replaced by the Lord Mayor of Sydney, who was at the time Alderman Jensen, and he too was plagued by constant hoaxers.
0: I also read in a book that there was a blind man who offered to act as the middleman between the kidnapper and the thorns because if he couldn't see the kidnapper, there was no risk of them being identified. But as we know, nothing came of it.
1: On Friday, July 8th, so we're talking two days after Graham went missing, Police received a phone call from an older man who was bushwalking in French's Forest, which is 26 kilometers or 16 miles from where the Thorns lived at Bondi. This man had been out looking for empty soft drink bottles to bring to the recycling center for the deposit money. He contacted the police at about 6 p.m., saying he found a school case with Graham's name on it while he was out. He hid the case in a hollow and then went home strangely he waited six hours to contact the police the investigators went to where the man said the case was and it was there and it was taken in for examination there were no fingerprints on it but this was the first piece of solid evidence they had
0: by dawn the following day a huge search started with hundreds of police soldiers helicopters and divers Sniffer dogs were flown in from South Australia. Even Graham's school friends were brought in to help, which, look, I don't know. For one, I'm doubtful they could understand the importance of, if they came past evidence, would they know not to touch it? And then there's the fact that, at some point, police would have had to consider by this stage, we're talking 72 hours later, that he may have been killed, What would have happened if one of the kids found him? Between this and the June Robles search, there are some questionable search tactics going on around this era. The search continued throughout the weekend, but it wasn't until Monday, July 11th, that Graham's school cap, raincoat, mass book, and lunchbox were found about a mile away from where the school case was found and on the opposite side of the road. And sadly, the lunchbox still had all of Graeme's food inside, including that apple that his mother had peeled and then lovingly rewrapped that morning of his abduction. After this, the investigation escalated, even though reading what they had done up until this point, it's difficult to imagine how. The investigators involved were working around the clock, By now the FBI was involved, they offered to provide resources because forensic procedures were only new to Australia and they hadn't really yet been used in any investigation. The police printed 5,000 posters carrying Graham's picture and description and they were distributed to police stations, food and milk companies, shopping centres, really anywhere that people regularly gathered.
1: And this led to an increase of alleged sightings of Graham in movie theaters, cars, shops, parks, not just in Sydney, but all over Australia. The investigators followed up on every sighting, and every last one was eventually discounted. It was a logistical nightmare for the investigators involved, as you can imagine. The sheer volume of tips and sightings that were coming through was unprecedented. Some were looking for attention or a reward, but many of these people were genuine but mistaken. It turns out there are a lot of eight-year-old boys in Australia who have no distinguishing features. On Saturday, July 23rd, more than two weeks after Graham had been taken, Basil and Frida gave a television interview like many families of missing kids. And like many of those interviews, it really is one of the most heartbreaking things you will ever see. They pleaded for the kidnapper to make contact with them again. This was the first time Frida would make a public appearance.
2: We can't understand the attitude of the people who have kidnapped Graham. They have asked for £25,000. We have said we will pay this sum, but the kidnappers won't get in touch with us. They should not fear approaching us. I can assure them there will be no interference. We will do exactly as the kidnappers tell us. Any contact they make will be in the strictest secrecy. You want £25,000, and we want our son. If we both get what we want, we will be happy. Please send us Graham back.
1: For weeks, Basil and Frida hoped that the next call would be the call that would be the genuine kidnapper, and that they could get Graham back, despite the odds being against it. As the weeks went by, the calls died down, and they eventually had to know they were not going to get him back.
0: Which, as a parent of a child around Graham's age, I don't know how you go on. How do you tell his little sister that the brother she looks up to, he isn't coming home? I don't think it's overstating this, but it's literally every parent's worst nightmare. And then a key witness comes forward. Cecil Denmead and his fiancée, who lived in Bondi at the time, reported to the police that they had seen a man standing next to a car parked at the corner of Wellington Street at around the time Graham disappeared. By now the police were convinced that this is where Graham was taken. It fit in with all the other sightings of Graham and the car sightings. Cecil reported it stood out to him because as you said earlier, Charlie, the car was strangely parked on the intersection and he had to kind of veer around it to get past. And Cecil's description of the driver matched that of the visitor to the Thorns house in the weeks before the kidnapping. And for Cecil, he claimed to be a car enthusiast and that he was adamant the car he saw was an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line. The police at this stage are understandably sceptical because they had gotten so many different reports of so many different suspicious cars being in the area, so they put him through a whole stack of tests. They made him pick out the year and model of different cars from a book of cars, and then they took him around a car yard and made him pick out again particular years and models of cars, and he passed every test they threw at him.
1: Satisfied now that this was their guy, 25 police officers were dispatched to the motor registry office to go through all the car ownership registration details. This took three or four days, which had to have been incredibly frustrating. With a missing persons case, the first few days are crucial, and by now they were well past that point, and they were having to go through more than 273 thousand index cards of Ford motor vehicles by hand. Something that we could now type into a database and have a list spit out they had to do by hand. But thanks to Cecil really knowing his cars, this was actually a smaller task than it would have been if it had been me who saw the car and couldn't give very much information. Imagine if all he remembered was it was a blue or even that it was a blue Ford. But he knew the model and the year And that saved investigators countless
0: hours of work. Jeez, if I saw the car, I would say it had four wheels. It was a bluish color. It had four doors.
1: I'm the same way. They found 4,000 1955 Ford Custom Lines throughout New South Wales. And every single one of those 4,000 cars would have to be forensically searched. And in most cases, the owners were interviewed there was a decision to keep this search for this specific car confidential and not release it to the public. And thankfully on this occasion, despite some journalists finding out this little piece of information, there was no mention of it in the media. Possibly even they realized it was not in the public's interest to know, and it could impede the police finding who took Graham if the kidnapper knew his car had been spotted.
0: I think by this stage, even the journalists would understand the urgency in trying to find Graham. Exactly. And in hindsight, this search did have its flaws. I mean, you would think a rational kidnapper wouldn't have used his own car for the kidnapping, especially in broad daylight on a public street. And it was very possible the car was borrowed or stolen or maybe even sold straight after. Or maybe they painted the car or modified it somewhat. But regardless, as you said, the police went through the painstaking task of interviewing every owner on where they were the morning of July 7, and they checked their cars for evidence. And then on August 16, 1960, almost six weeks after Graham's disappearance, several children were playing on a vacant lot at Seaforth, which is a suburb north of Sydney. This was a popular place for kids to play because there was a large rock that the local kids liked to use as type of a fort. On this particular day, they find a small bundle wrapped in a picnic blanket. The children run home and they mention it to one of their mothers and she tells them to just leave it alone and don't go back there until their father got home. That night, a few of the kids' fathers went to investigate. They found a brightly coloured picnic blanket wrapped around an object, and it was tied with string. When they untied the string, they immediately saw two human arms. Obviously, they had been following the news, and they had a sick feeling of who this could be. So they don't touch the body, and they immediately return home and contact the police. Within minutes, investigators are all over the scene, where they discover the young boy, still fully dressed in the Scots College uniform, it was Graham. His ankles were tightly tied together with twine and a silk scarf was loosely knotted around his neck. It was later determined that with the size of the loop, the scarf would have been used at some stage as a gag, but it had become loose. Devastatingly, moments before the police arrived to break the news of the discovery to Frieda and Basil, they learnt that Graham's body was found on a television broadcast.
1: The autopsy was conducted the following day. There were scattered surface hemorrhages inside Graham's lungs and upper air passages that would be consistent with asphyxiation. Graham's stomach was empty, which indicated that death occurred sometime after he had eaten breakfast. However, that's debatable within itself due to the length of time it took to find him. The coroner found a wound to the back of Graham's head, with an underlying fracture of the skull, which indicated the use of considerable force. The fracture had caused a cerebral hemorrhage, which is basically bleeding in and around the brain. The bleeding indicates that Graham's heart was still pumping and he was alive when he was hit in the head. Over a period of time, this type of bleeding will cause intense pressure to the brainstem. That controls breathing and the heart. And without medical intervention, it will eventually lead to death. Taking these two findings, the evidence of asphyxiation and the head injury, the cause of death was deemed to be due to either blunt force trauma to the head or asphyxiation or possibly a combination of both.
0: Now, as I said, forensic science, it hadn't been used in a criminal investigation up to this point. But with some guidance from the FBI, this case became heavily focused on the physical forensic evidence they had, which they needed to work out when and where Graham died, which they hoped would lead to his killer. And this was quickly determined, mould found on Graham's shoes showed that the shoes had not been walked in for at least four weeks, which meant that Graham would have been killed soon after his kidnapping. The picnic blanket Graham was found in, forensics went over repeatedly. They were convinced it was the clue to who Graham's killer was. Now, when I say picnic blanket, this is also called a picnic rug in articles and on police reports. But it's just your generic blanket you would take with you to sit on at a picnic. There was nothing remarkable about it. In fact, it was one of about 3,000 of its kind. But well, what happened is the blanket was laid out on the examination table and two examiners would go over it inch by inch and they removed what they could see, whether it be grass or fibres or some hair, and they removed it using tweezers.
1: Anything that wasn't grass or dirt was sent through to microbiologist Dr. Cameron Cramp. He found several hairs on the blanket and on Graham's clothing that were from a dog he also concluded that the breed of dog that contributed the Hares was a Pekingese. You might think investigators would be thrilled at such specific information, but it was quite the opposite. They were worried that this conclusion narrowed the field of suspects too much. Was the doctor sure it was a Pekingese and not a similar breed? Was he sure the Hares were not just transfer from incidental contact with a dog? They felt like this hard and fast conclusion was going to restrict them, but Dr. Cramp was adamant. The dog hair was from a Pekinese, and there were too many hairs for it to be unrelated or incidental. The foliage taken from the blanket and from Graham's clothes was found to have come from two different types of cypress bushes. One was widespread in Sydney, but the other was really uncommon. These samples were taken to the vacant lot with the botanist But they did not come from the location where Graham was found. Neither of these plants would be found in the bush anyway, which is essentially what that vacant lot was. These were garden plants. And the combination of having both of them in one place, I think that documentary we watched said something, it was something like one in 1,000, that both of these would be found in the same spot. So basically, this was the clue they were looking for. And we'll definitely link to that documentary in the show notes.
0: And finally, the soil samples. Geologists found some fragments of a pinkish-gray sand-like substance on Graham's clothing and shoes. Further examination showed the substance could only be pink builder's mortar, which would mean they were looking for an older house because this mortar was only used up until around the mid-40s when houses were still being built by sand and limestone and not cement. And because this mortar would wash out in the rain, most houses had been updated. So a house that still used pink limestone mortar, it would be quite unusual. So with all this forensic information, investigators were able to put together a profile of the house they were looking for. It would have to have the two cypress trees growing in the garden. There would have to be pink mortar lying on hard surfaces. Someone living at the house either owned or owned an iridescent blue 1955 Ford Custom Line, and they either own or owned a Pekingese dog. But they were at a loss at where to start looking. Even though Sydney wasn't entirely big yet, there was still a population of around 2 million, and the search for the Ford Custom Line owners, it wasn't really producing any persons of interest. So the decision was made to release descriptions of the blanket and the custom line, and these were published in newspapers, magazines, and on news bulletins. And this resulted in a renewed public interest in the case, and hundreds of tips came in.
1: One of the first was from a resident of Clontarf, which is about 19 kilometres or 11.5 miles from where the Thorns lived at Bondi. He called the police station to report that he was suspicious of his previous tenant. This tenant had a slight foreign accent. He owned an iridescent blue 1955 custom line, and he also fit the description of the inquiry agent who visited the Thorns' home. He also reported that this tenant had, quite coincidentally, moved out of the house on the very day Graham had disappeared. And then a few days later, another resident of Clontarf contacted the police to report their suspicions about their former next-door neighbor. Their reasons were that their neighbor had a strong European accent, he had only bought the blue Ford about a week before the kidnapping, and had moved out suddenly the day Graham went missing. The neighbors reported that on the morning of the kidnapping, this man's wife and children had left their home in a taxi to go away on a holiday to Queensland, but the man stayed home, and then around the middle of the day, the neighbors had heard strange noises that sounded like a baby whimpering and a man mumbling unintelligibly. They told the police that they were convinced he was involved, and this man was Stephen Leslie Bradley.
0: Now, before we go into Bradley's story and background, something that frustrates me in these kind of cases, and I think we heard something similar in the Beaumont Children case. But if these neighbours were that suspicious, I'm not sure why they waited so long. But despite these two reports, they were filed away in the case file and nothing more was followed up, which I think is another flaw in the investigation. Again, it's no fault of the police This was an unprecedented case, and this was a time, as you said before, Charlie, there was no computer databases. They had so much information coming in to keep track of, and it was all kept in paper files. And this would not be the last time we would hear about Bradley in this investigation. So, who is Stephen Leslie Bradley? Bradley was a Hungarian immigrant born in Budapest, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce his birth name. He migrated to Australia in 1950, and that is when he changed his name to what we know him as, Stephen Leslie Bradley. 34-year-old Bradley had been married three times, which was a rarity back in the 1960s. Bradley had divorced his first wife in Europe, and his second wife, well, it is alluded to that she may have died in suspicious circumstances in Australia. And then he married his current wife, Magda. Together, they had their three children from their respective former marriages. Magda had two boys, Paul, who was 13, and five-year-old Ross. And Ross was deaf and largely unable to communicate. And Stephen had a daughter, seven-year-old Helen. In the book Kidnapped, about the Graham Thorne abduction, it is mentioned a lot that Stephen was classically handsome and women were just drawn to his sexual magnetism. But I mean, look, I don't know about you, Charlie... Look, we'll put at least one picture on our Facebook page and we'll let you come to your own conclusion.
1: Yeah, we'll try not to be uh, too judgy ourselves, but
0: come chat with
1: us on Facebook about it.
0: And we'll be completely judgy.
1: Yeah, we put all that stuff on Facebook. On August 24th, after the two reports from Bradley's neighbor and landlord, two detectives went to interview Bradley at his workplace, a place called Nut and Muddle. He was a poker machine manufacturer. And now a poker machine is also known as a slot machine, a fruit machine, a puggy, whatever you want to call it where you are. This interview wasn't because of the reports, however. It was just one of the routine checks of the 1955 Ford Custom Line owners. In this interview, Bradley told detectives that he had sold his house in Clontarf and that he and his family had had recently moved into rent accommodation in Manly on July 7th, which was the day Graham was kidnapped. He admitted to owning two cars, an iridescent blue Ford Custom Line and a Go-Go-Mobile, which that is literally how you say it according to the internet, but he had since sold the Custom Line to a car dealership. Bradley insisted that the car wasn't driven and didn't leave the garage that day at all. On July 7th, he said he was home with his family until about 10 a.m. when his wife and kids left, and then the movers arrived about 45 minutes later, and he didn't leave the house all day. And this alibi was corroborated. The taxi company confirmed that a taxi had picked up the family between 9.30 and 9.45. Now, while no one saw him specifically, the police just accepted that he was home with his family until then. The movers confirmed he was there from 10.15 until the mid-afternoon. So this gave him an alibi for the day, but particularly for the morning hours when Graham was taken and when the phone call was made. The investigators marked him off the list without slightest suspicion.
0: And back to the investigation, they were looking for this elusive house with the unlikely combination of the two different species of cypress trees plus that pink limestone mortar. The investigators carried with them photographs and specimens of the plants and the mortar that they were looking for. They walked the streets for a week straight, but they could find houses with maybe one of the criteria, but not the other. Then the decision was made to maybe talk to postmen to cover more ground quicker, because the thinking was that the postmen would know the houses on their route, and then they'd be able to focus their search on relevant streets or particular houses. One of these postmen said that in the area he looked after, he knew of a place that owned a blue Ford. However, these people had recently moved. And he thought the house was made from pink limestone mortar because it stood out to him. As I said earlier, it was rare by 1960. And he also said there were some unusual plants in the garden that looked like the samples the investigators had.
1: Investigators inspected the house. At the back of the garage, they found a pile of lawn clippings, including from the two species of cypress trees that were also growing in the garden. There was damp clay mixed with pink limestone mortar on the floor of the garage and amongst the bricks. Also on the floor was a single tassel from a blanket, which matched the blanket Graham was found wrapped in. The man who lived there was a person the police had already interviewed, and that man was, as you guessed, I'm sure already, Stephen Leslie Bradley. There was a problem, though. Bradley had already left the country. The new owners told the investigators that the veterinary surgeon had called looking for the Bradleys because he had their Pekingese dog and needed to know the forwarding address in England.
0: Bradley and his family had sailed out of Sydney aboard the Himalaya, and on the very day investigators were looking through his former home, the ship was departing from Melbourne after picking up some more passengers and it was heading into international waters. The concern the investigators had was that Bradley could head to an Eastern European country, like his birth country of Hungary, where he could easily disappear and it'd be impossible to extradite him back to Australia. Before leaving Melbourne, Bradley mails several letters, each told a different story why the family were making the unexpected move. He told the children's school the family were moving to Brisbane. He told Magda's first husband, the father of her son Paul, that the family were going away on an extended holiday, but he didn't say where. He told his employer he was having surgery on his back that might require several months to make a full recovery. And to his landlord, he simply sent a partial payment for the outstanding rent. The following day, investigators found Bradley's Ford Custom Line. And inside the boot of the car, they found the same hair, soil and plant that they found on Graham's clothing and the blanket. Now, before we go any further, a boot of a car is what is also referred to as a trunk of a car for our American listeners. But as this is an Australian case, we're going to refer to the back compartment of a car where you would keep your spare tire or maybe put your shopping as a boot.
1: Later, when further testing was done on the boot of the car using a breathing machine, it was determined that if Graham had been conscious and not injured, and if his mouth wasn't gagged, then there would have been sufficient air in the boot for him to survive for several hours. However, if the scarf was covering his mouth while the boot was closed, then it would have been possible he could have died of asphyxiation. Add on to that the injury to his head, reducing his ability to breathe even more, it's believed he died there in the boot. They had a significant amount of circumstantial evidence against Stephen Bradley and nearly as much forensic evidence as was possible in the 1960s. However, the investigators wanted to make sure this was an open and shut case because there was some uncertainty about getting the extradition signed off or if it was even a possibility at that stage. The stronger the case, the more likely they could get him back to Australia. With this in mind, on October 8th, Frida and Basil Thorne were shown a photo lineup, which included one of Stephen Bradley. Neither had any problem identifying him as the man who came to their door claiming to be the private agent all those months before. With this visual identification and the circumstantial evidence, arrangements could be made for a provisional arrest warrant. That's an arrest pending the formal extradition request. The arrest was to happen in the city of Colombo in modern-day Sri Lanka.
0: The procedures for an extradition of a subject from an overseas country to Australia is extremely complex and it relies on a whole heap of variables. The smallest error or admission on the documentation can result in the whole process being invalid, which means the suspect can literally get away with murder. And then there needs to be an extradition treaty between Australia and the foreign country to begin with. And in this case, in 1960, there was no extradition treaty between Australia and Sri Lanka, which was called Ceylon at the time. The country didn't become Sri Lanka until it became a republic in 1972, but that is for another podcast at another time. But thankfully, due to the willingness to help by the government of Ceylon, they were open to accept the extradition request. Now, the Australian warrant isn't enforceable outside of Australia, but it allowed a Colombo magistrate then to order their own provisional warrant for Bradley's arrest. And this was the first step on having Bradley taken off the Himalaya and extradited back to Australia for the murder trial.
1: When the Himalaya docked in Colombo, the Harbor Patrol officers immediately put Bradley under arrest. After a short court appearance, he was held at Colombo's main high security jail, awaiting the extradition hearing in Sydney. This hearing was held on October 17, 1960. 60 prosecution witnesses were called over three days. As is usually the case in the first stage of an extradition hearing, Stephen Bradley was not represented. So there was no cross-examination of the witnesses. For our U.S. listeners and our non-U.S. listeners who watch Law & Order, this is similar to a grand jury. It's not a trial. It's just one side laying out their case to see if there's even enough evidence to go forward. On the third day of the hearing, it was ruled that the evidence against Bradley showed a strong and probable presumption of guilt for the murder of Graham Thorne. The documents to certify the extradition were certified in an unprecedented three days, and on October 21st, Sergeant Doyle boarded the plane for Colombo to extradite Bradley back to Australia for the trial. On the flight back, according to Sergeant Doyle, Bradley attempted to make a confession of sorts. Sergeant Doyle advised Bradley that this was not the place to say anything that could be used against him, and it was best to just wait for the formal interview. And that's what any smart police officer would do. The defense could easily dispute this spontaneous oral confession that was not witnessed by anyone else. They could allege fabrication or even coercion to make a false confession. A police officer who knew Doyle said that Doyle just had a way of talking to people. He was one of those people who People just told things to, and so it did not surprise him at all that a spontaneous confession came out on the plane trip. But even so, the officers were determined that this case would be played out by the book. They did not want any doubts in the minds of the jury.
0: For his formal interview, Bradley told police that he did not want to wait for a lawyer to advise him before speaking because he knew exactly what he wanted to say. Bradley admitted that he had gone to the Thorns' home posing as a private investigator, but he didn't remember using the name Bogner. His reason for visiting was that he wanted to meet Frieda and Basil prior to the kidnapping. And over the course of two weeks after that, he often left his home at Clontarf at 6am to conduct surveillance on the Thorn home, either from the park opposite their home or in a nearby street in his car. Bradley saw that at about 8.30 every weekday morning, Graham left home on foot in his private school uniform and carrying his school case. He would turn left at Wellington Street and walk the two blocks down the hill to the corner store and buy his bag of chips. He would sit on his school case, eat his snack and wait to be picked up about 10 minutes later by a woman in a station wagon with her two young boys that were about the same age and in the same uniform. Bradley admitted to the following the station wagon on one occasion and he learnt that the boys were all students at the nearby college. Bradley then moved on to the day of the kidnapping and this is where we find out what happened or what I should say is Bradley's version of events at this moment in time because his version does change several times. Bradley saw Graham walk towards him as Graham would normally do towards the corner store. Bradley was standing outside his car by the open passenger side door as Cecil Denmead had saw him. He called Graham by his name and told him that the lady who normally would pick him up was sick and that he was to take Graham to school. Bradley mentioned the school by name. He called Graham's mother by her name. And the fact the lady had normally picked him up had two boys who went to the same school. So that even though Frida, Graham's mother, had told him as we as parents tell our children all the time that you should never ever go in a car with a stranger but to Graham this couldn't be a stranger. He just knew too much about him. So this must have been a friend of his parents that he just hadn't met before. So thinking everything was fine and not wanting to get into trouble for being late to school Graham got in the front seat next to Bradley.
1: By telling Graham that they were on their way to school, Bradley had to keep Graham from panicking and making a scene when they didn't head off in the direction of Scott's College. Bradley told Graham that they had to pick up another boy first, and this is when Bradley made the phone call to the Thorns' home for the ransom demand from a public phone box. He claimed that Graham sat quietly in the seat of the car while Bradley was on the phone. Bradley then drove them to his own house and pulled the car into the garage. He told Graham to get out of the car, walked him around the back of the car, and pushed him into the car boot, closing it, which locks it automatically. The movers would arrive just minutes later. Bradley claimed he didn't check on or speak to Graham for the remainder of the day. No one else went into the garage either, Bradley moved boxes out of the garage himself to keep the movers from going in there. Bradley also claimed the only noise he heard from the car was a light knock three or four times, and he said this may have been Graham hitting his head on the spare tire. He also said he didn't check to see what it actually was or if Graham was okay after hearing these thumps. Late afternoon, early evening, he read what the rest of the area read in the paper that day. Everything that had happened, the kidnapping and the ransom demand, it was in the papers. That's when Bradley finally went out to the garage to check on Graham. Just as it was getting dark, and this being winter in Australia, the sunset was probably around 5 p.m., Bradley went to the car and allegedly found Graham dead. Graham said that he first panicked and put the boy's body under the house. That's how the mortar and the foliage got onto his clothes and onto his shoes. Soon after, Bradley wrapped him in the blanket, tied his legs together with a string, and put him in back into the boot of the car. He then drove to near French's forest to throw away Graham's things before bringing Graham to the vacant lot and putting his body under the rock where it was later found.
0: Bradley also signs a handwritten confession, but he changes his version again, and he added that he may have accidentally hit Graham's head when he slammed the boot shut. He also said he was prepared to help the police by showing them the route he had taken with Graham after the kidnapping, and then when he later disposed of the body and the belongings. The following Monday, Bradley consented to take part in an ID parade in which Frida and Basil were given the opportunity to identify the men they thought had come to their home in the weeks prior to the kidnapping. However, I'm not sure why this actually happened or how this could help the investigation, considering both of them had already identified a photograph of Bradley a month earlier and a local newspaper had already published photos of him as being a suspect. But regardless of the logic behind it, the line-up happened, and Frida immediately identified Bradley. It was the procedure in the 1960s for the person to go up and physically touch the person they are identifying. But in this case, Frida flat-out refused, which, I mean, can you blame her? This is the man who admitted to being the reason her son had died. Basil also immediately identified Bradley, and he too refused to touch him.
1: In the two to three weeks between his confession to the police and the coronial inquest that began on December 5th, Stephen Bradley had changed his story as to what happened that day. Bradley now insisted he was innocent. He alleged he was intimidated by the police, by threats that were made against him if he didn't fully cooperate and confessed to the kidnapping. If he didn't confess, they would force Magda to come back from England and charge her with being an accomplice. The children, with both of their parents in prison, possibly for a long time, they would undoubtedly end up in an orphanage in London, a city where they were strangers. Bradley was willing to say all of this in court, that these threats happened. On December 5th, 1960, the coronal inquest started. As we have discussed before in the Lindy Chamberlain episode, this type of hearing is held for two reasons. Firstly, it allows the coroner to make a formal finding in relation to the cause of death of the person. And secondly, if the coroner finds that there's sufficient evidence to determine a particular person was criminally responsible for a death... He can then refer the case to be put to trial. Again, similar to the extradition hearing, in this inquest, the defense generally doesn't put forward their case or evidence. This is purely an opportunity to put forward what was known about the case. And by the end of the inquest, the coroner found that there was a sufficient case against Stephen Bradley to commit him for trial.
0: So on March 20, 1961, the trial starts. Bradley only faced trial for murder because, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, this was a time where there was no offence of kidnapping for ransom under the laws of New South Wales. And this case also had another first. Not only was this the first kidnapping for ransom case in Australia, and this was the first case that used forensics, but it was the first murder trial in New South Wales history in which women could be selected to serve on the jury. And how jurors were selected were their names were randomly pulled out of a box. And despite women being able to be selected, the jury ended up being all male. This was more of a case of there being so few women being available for selection that it being something a bit more suspicious. The trial took place over eight days, which made it one of the longest criminal trials in New South Wales. And really, when you think about the kind of case this is, and the complexity of the forensic evidence, even by today's standard, if this trial happened in 2017, it would more likely run for something like maybe three or four months, or possibly longer. The Crown
1: Key's relied heavily on the forensic evidence and the oral and written confession of Bradley, as well as the identification of Bradley by Frida and Basil Thorne. The Crown argued that although Bradley had admitted he had kidnapped Graham, what he said concerning how Graham had died was not supported by the injuries sustained and contradicted the autopsy results. Would Graham really have sat compliant in the car this entire time, including while Bradley made the phone call and pulled into his own driveway? Why would Bradley leave Graham in the trunk conscious and able to make noise when he knew he'd have movers in and out of the house for hours? Not only did this not make sense from a common sense or a behavioral standpoint, two experts testified to what we talked about earlier, There was enough air in the trunk for someone to survive, even if they were in there for seven or eight hours like Graham was. And as for the head injury, it seems like Bradley was trying to say that Graham had caused it himself by hitting his head on the spare tire. It's just rather coincidental that in the seven or eight hours he was in the trunk and not being looked in on, he just happened to make this noise when Bradley was there to witness it. Regardless, a forensic pathologist argued that he could not have done that injury to himself in the constraints of the boot. The force needed for the severity of the fracture to his skull was more than Graham could have done to himself. The injury was likely caused by a solid, blunt object, and there was just not enough room for him to have inflicted that himself.
0: For the defence, this revolved around the alleged coerce and false confession and that Bradley was no way involved in Graham's kidnapping or death and that the police officers involved used devious and unethical tactics to leave him with no other option but to confess to a crime he did not commit, a fact that both police officers heavily deny when they are placed on the stand. Now, something we have talked about in the Alison Baden-Clay episode is the effects having the accused take the stand has, it has a huge effect on the trial. And it's not always for the better either, because you are leaving them open for the cross-examination and then things come out that, as a defence lawyer, you don't want the jury to hear. Especially in this case, where the accused is now arguing he was coerced into giving a confession, yet there was solid amount of circumstantial evidence against him. In 1961, there were three options. You could take the stand, you could choose to remain silent, or you could make an unsworn statement from the dock. And unlike the question answer type format that you would see when you take the stand, a dock statement consisted of an unprompted and unstructured statement where the accused can give their version of what happened. They are not required to take an oath where they say that they will tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth and there was no cross-examination.
1: In this case, there was an unusual choice. Bradley wanted to give sworn evidence and take the stand, but also deliver a doc statement. But in doing so, this would allow the prosecution to bring up anything he said in the doc statement in the cross-examination when he was on the stand, so he didn't get that benefit of making a doc statement without being cross-examined. Now, Bradley's version of events in his doc statement was a complete denial of any involvement in Graham's kidnapping and his death. He said that he had never been to the Thorn home. He was not even in Bondi on the day of the kidnapping. He went back to the original story he told the police way back when they questioned him at his workplace in that routine questioning because he owned the car. On July 7th, he said he was at home with his family till 10 a.m., Then the movers arrived 45 minutes later, and they stayed till mid-afternoon. Clearly, if this is what happened, there would not have been a window of opportunity for Bradley to have driven to Bondi and kidnapped Graham. He admitted owning a blanket similar to the one found wrapped around Graham, but he claimed they had lost it around Christmas time, the year previous to the kidnapping.
0: Now, Magda Bradley had been brought back to Australia to give evidence in support of her husband. She supported Bradley's alibi that until they left for Queensland, he was with the family, which was the most important part anyway, because as you said earlier, Charlie, this was when the kidnapping actually happened. She gave evidence that the picnic blanket was similar to the one they owned, but theirs was much more worn and faded. And that the scarf around Graham's neck, well, her husband didn't even own one like it. And the only reason they left for England was for her so she could see if she could sell her songs and musical compositions, which wasn't a complete fabrication because she was a songwriter when she was younger. Because this was back in the day when you were married, that was your job, to be a wife and a mother. In any prior career aspirations, they took the back seat. Magda explained that she and Bradley lied to people about where they were going because If they told the truth, her ex-husband would not have allowed her to take Paul with them.
1: Finally, the defense argued the accuracy of the identification by Frida and Basil because, as we said earlier, the photos were in the newspaper prior to the lineup parade. There was the possibility they were influenced by this rather than their actual memory, and this is a concern with lineups that occur after a suspect's photo has appeared in print or on TV. We honestly don't know if the person was influenced by it. However, in this case, we know the Thorns had already identified Bradley in a photo lineup, and that happened three days before the photo of Bradley was in the newspaper, even if we toss out the lineup parade, which we probably honestly should, there is still the photo lineup where Bradley was identified.
0: After deliberating for three and a half hours, the jury returned with a verdict that Bradley was guilty for the murder of Graham Thorne. And in sentencing, Stephen Leslie Bradley was sentenced to life in prison. Now, of course, Bradley appeals his sentence. And this was based on the defense believing that the judge delivered an unbalanced summary to the jury, and gave too much weight to the Crown's case and too little to the defence. The prosecution catter argued that the appeal wasn't warranted because the Crown case wasn't just strong and convincing, it was overwhelming, and it didn't depend on one category of evidence but three, it had confessional, circumstantial, and identification. Following these submissions, the Court of Criminal Appeal handed down its decision in which all three judges rejected the appeal, as they couldn't find any miscarriage of justice.
1: In early June of 1961, about two weeks after the appeal, Bradley was transferred to a maximum security jail at Goulburn. In November of that year, the New South Wales government refused the application for Bradley for legal aid to appeal to the High Court. This decision was based on the belief that the appeal had no reasonable prospect of success. Bradley opted not to pursue the appeal any further.
0: For Magda's part, Paul, who was now 14, he decided to live with his father permanently. Bradley's second wife, who was the mother of their daughter, Helen, his parents, so Helen's maternal grandparents, they successfully won custody of Helen until she turned 16. So that left Magda and Ross and they returned to England after the high court appeal was denied. After leaving Australia, Magda never saw Bradley again. In 1965, they divorced. She continued denying having any knowledge of what Bradley had done with Graham. She died in 2002.
1: Yeah, I saw in some interviews that detectives do not believe that Bradley acted alone, but they didn't have evidence on anyone else. And I kind of have wondered if Magda was the person they were hinting at in those interviews. Stephen Bradley's life sentence turned out to be a rather short life sentence. On October 6, 1968, just eight years into his sentence, he was playing a game of tennis with other inmates when he died of a heart attack. He was just 42 years old. For Bradley's part, he continued to maintain his innocence of the kidnapping and murder of Graham right up to his death.
0: In September 1960, one of the many people who had attempted to extort money from the Thorns and who was one of the the only who had been caught, they were found guilty. In a written statement, Basil Thorne testified that he spoke to a man on the phone who claimed he had Graham and that this man's name was Alfred Vercoe. Which was the guy's actual name. I mean, if you're going to try and extort money out of someone, I'm not sure why you would use your actual name. But anyway, Verco told Basil that Graham was safe and he'd be returned upon receipt of £25,000. And Verco claimed that he wasn't the one who actually kidnapped Graham, but he just knew where Graham was being held. I think by the stage of this call, Basil had quickly learned that people were just trying to scam them. And honestly, this isn't the most believable story someone could have come up with. So Basil doesn't go through or doesn't try to set up this exchange. In court, Vico admitted that he had said these things to Basil, but he denied he had any intention of getting any money from him. Alfred Vico was sentenced to two years imprisonment, In sentencing, the judge called Vico a callous human in trying to prey on such vulnerable people in such a horrible situation.
1: The Thorns moved to another suburb with their youngest child, Belinda, but they never really recovered. I mean, how could they? Basil Thorne died in 1978. Frida died in 2012 at the age of 86. Thankfully, there was some good that came out of what happened, which doesn't seem to happen in too many cases we cover. Soon after the kidnapping and murder, new laws were introduced. Firstly, all state lotteries had to maintain the privacy of the winners. Publicity was solely at the winner's discretion. Here in the U.S., like with a lot of things, this depends on the state you're in. Of the 44 states that have a lottery, only six allow you to remain anonymous. One shields your name for three months following the win, and a few allow there to be an appointed trustee like a lawyer to collect the prize on behalf of the client, which then allows the winner to remain anonymous. The vast majority of states, however, disclose the winner's name by state law. The argument in favor of releasing the names of lottery winners is that it ensures public confidence in the lottery That real people do win. It's not just smoke and mirrors. And it also makes cheating or fixing the lotto much harder. However, as we see in this case, and there is a case in the United States of a man who was preyed on by a woman after he won the the lottery, there is a downside to publicizing these names.
0: At the time of these laws changing, it was only in New South Wales. We have another case scheduled in for later this year that involves a lottery winner in another state and a crime against her. And then in December of 1961, the New South Wales Parliament passed an amendment to the Crimes Act, which introduced the new crime of kidnapping for ransom or for any other advantage. And from what I could find, there has only been one other kidnapping for ransom involving a child in Australia. And that was in October of 1972, When a teacher and six schoolgirls were kidnapped from their school for a million-dollar ransom in Faraday, Victoria. The teacher and the girls managed to escape before the ransom was paid, but again that is another story for another episode.
1: One of the things I liked about this story is I had no idea about the history of the Sydney Opera House funding. And so that made me just incidentally rabbit hole digging into that. And, you know, I like those historical ones that where I get to learn something new. I really liked the introduction of forensics into this case that that really changed things. And then the changing of the law, I never really thought about the downside of publicizing the names of lotto winners. There was a lot here that led me to other areas to think about different things differently and to learn more. But what a horribly tragic case. Uh, it, It does remind me the entire time we were researching it of the Lindbergh baby kidnapping.
0: And there was a lot of reference to that at the time in news articles. And for those who are interested in maybe learning more... There is a great book that goes into things we didn't today for a couple of reasons, mainly because we don't do six-hour episodes, but the book does go into the many extortion attempts and a theorized version of what is believed to have actually happened to Graham by Bradley. And this is a theory from an expert who happened to be the prosecutor in the Kathleen Fallbig case, and that's Mark Tedesky QC. And then as Charlie mentioned earlier, there is a solid documentary by the Crime Investigation Australia team. We'll link both of these in the show notes. The documentary covers two cases, this one, and then also the one of Daniel Morecambe. The part on Daniel is outdated, as this was done when Daniel was still missing. And I think every Australian knows by this point that since then, Daniel has been found and his killer has been charged. I'm actually working in the background with some people at getting an episode together on Daniel Morecambe, so we'll keep you posted on that one. Okay, so some thank yous. Firstly, to our wonderful patrons on Patreon. Thank you to Brooke V, Anita, Heather P, and Nuts Meg Teller, and to our lovely five-star reviews that we do appreciate so much. Thank you to Bibiana222, Horror of True Crime, Pippi Creek, and Harold Ree. And then to our housekeeping, we are on Facebook. We have a page where we post all the episodes and a discussion group, which is exactly that. It's a private group where we discuss episodes, documentaries, other podcasts we listen to, and basically any other case that anyone is interested in. Charlie and I are fairly active in the group, so come over and join us. We are on Twitter where you can chat to Charlie, and that's at InsightfulPod. I post photos on Instagram, and that's at InsightPod. And on the email, we are at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. We have a PayPal for a one-off donation and a Patreon for an ongoing monthly donation On Patreon, we have some great rewards for our patrons, like a monthly bonus episode, stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and a lovely thank you card from Charlie. All links are on our website, insightpod.com, and you can also listen to our episodes there, read our show notes, and access some additional research if you want to read up some more. And finally, it would mean the world to us if you would rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. It really spreads the word and keeps us doing what we do. And I think we have gone on long enough for one episode for Charlie to work her editing magic. So on that note, we will be back next week. It will be a shorter episode for Easter, but there will definitely be an episode. So we'll see you then.